Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. My name is Tom Byrne, and I am again filling in for John Powers. You can learn more about the innovative approach Clean Capital is taking to clean energy investing at cleancapital.com. Today, we're very excited to welcome Rob Day, founder and partner at Spring Lane Capital. Rob has been investing in clean energy for 15 years, different types of assets, and different types of investments. He's witnessed the growth and challenges of the clean energy space and has a wealth of experience to share with you. Enjoy. Rob Day, founding partner of Spring Lane Capital. Welcome to Experts Only Podcast. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me on. So you have been in the clean energy investing space for quite some time. For our listeners, let's give them a sense of how you got started uh, in the space. Sure. Uh, I actually started back in like around 2004. Um, I had always been interested in somehow getting involved into clean energy uh, along the way that it started out thinking I was going to be involved in, in policy work. Grew up in D.C. and, uh, you know, got surrounded by a lot of uh, people thinking really smart things about environmental and economics policy and thought I was going to get involved in that. I actually did my undergrad degree in poli-sci and economics and did, uh, you know, like my senior thesis in non-point source water emissions trading programs. So <laughs> I was a really cool, I was a really, really cool kid um, <laughs> back then. And uh, it turns out after I was able to, after college, join an environmental economics bank tank, uh, the World Resources Institute, it, it turned out I, I'm not a very good economist. Right. So instead, my job ended up uh, within WRI uh, was going out and meeting with big companies and helping them try to view the world through a sustainability lens and figure out how they could make more money by doing so. And that was a tremendous experience. It was a real grounding in how the actual business world works, how that contrasts with economics, for instance. And so I was able to get a lot of uh, perspectives, not only on what was going on in that regards in the business world, but also you know, being surrounded by actual smart economists and people tracking major natural resource trends, it became very clear to me that there was going to be a, a huge role for the business community in leading the charge on addressing things like climate change. And there was also going to be a big business opportunity in doing so. And yet there I was at a not-for-profit trying to get Fortune 500 companies to make a little bit of a change at a time. So instead, I decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur, and so I went into business school and came out of business school at a spectacularly bad time to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> and so instead, did a couple of years of management consulting, and then sort of graduated out of management consulting and went out to figure out what clean energy startup I was going to join, and stumbled instead, like I said, in 2004, into a role in uh, a fledgling growth stage clean tech venture capital firm, really before there were a lot of growth stage clean tech startups. And so it was really at the very beginning of that big upswing in the 2004 to 2007 timeframe of, of the whole sector. Um, and since then, you know, I, I ended up working uh, later with a different venture firm and then eventually ended up joining my current team within, uh, within a single family office that we all uh, came together around. So you've never actually had the opportunity to uh, be that entrepreneur in the early stages that you envisioned and you kind of leapfrogged it right into the investor role. That's exactly right. I, I 
frankly was working with that fledgling venture firm on a very part-time basis because I thought it might help me figure out what startups I wanted to go interview with. Yeah. Uh, and uh, instead, I guess, you know, it ended up being a good fit. One of the things which I found is, and I've just seen this again and again through the years, and you, and you, you see this yourself with you and your team, and we see this now ourselves with our team. You know, being an entrepreneur is really, really hard, and it's got to be your singular focus. And I am, I find, not particularly genius at any one thing. So the ability to take a step back and and really be more of a, a generalist who tries to be smart on a bunch of different things ends up being a better fit for me. And that ends up being something that lends itself sometimes uh, well into investing. Yeah, I have to say, being a founder of a, a startup myself, you find yourself uh, resorting to being a generalist as well. Um, all these skills that you built up in a particular trade over the years are useless if you can't adapt to many different adapt new skill sets as you're uh, running the company. Um, so that so you were you were involved in investing clean energy in the early stages, almost before even the boom. You know, oh four, oh five. Um, what was that landscape like? What kind of investments were you looking at? Were out there? What was the, there was a lot of hype in the VC market coming. Uh, give us a snapshot of that. Yeah, I'll give you a couple of snapshots. One at the very beginning of that period before it was growing popular among the venture capital set. Uh, in fact, we kind of referred to it as the Clean Tech Club. I, yeah. I don't know how many of us referred to it as that, but I did. <laughs> uh, and it was a very small handful of VCs, some specialists uh, who were just slogging along trying to figure out how they could make strong investments out of, uh, at that point, out of favor sector, but with a lot of promise. And then we really celebrated a few really smart generalists, you know, who were like a Rajat LaRue and the like, who, who were starting to to get into the space and Ira Aaron Price, you know, the, the people who are who are willing to take that flyer from uh, more of a, a well-known generalist firm and, and start to stick their toes into the clean tech water and, and in those particular cases and in other cases really take a leadership role. And it was fun because we could actually get just about everybody who was an investor in the sector together in one room at that point. And the conferences were, you know, good chances to, to catch up with everybody. Everybody was looking for opportunities to co-invest with each other. It was very collegial. And it was born out of the fact that everybody knew, hey, this is going to be hard, but we're finding good, solid businesses with compelling economics. And that's, that's really what people were looking for at that stage. It was a lot of hard tech stuff, uh, meaning, you know, hardware related businesses and the like. And really what we were looking for were compelling unit economics. Right. Yeah. So there wasn't this sense of, hey, the next unicorn, as if that phrase even existed at that time, but, you know, the next uniform is going to come out of the sector. Uh, instead, it was, hey, we're going to find good industrial looking technology solutions. And, and maybe, you know, we, we're at the right place at the right time when some of these market breakthroughs happen, and, you know, the anticipated solar revolution starts to happen, et cetera. Well, um, but it looked very much like it had looked, I, I would say, you know, at the tail end of the 90s when I wasn't actively an investor in it, but I got some exposure to it. And it was very much around, you know, okay, what, what's the next sort of chemical breakthrough or mechanical breakthrough or, or engineering breakthrough that's gonna, you know, lead, lead to some step change in the economics of how we produce a commodity or, or otherwise, you know, a, a hardware related business. So, then so were, were the investors, just the, yeah, oh, yeah go ahead. were the investors at that stage motivated by clean energy and environmental goals at the expense of economics or 
how were they looking at these investments? No, the opposite. The opposite. It was it was a hardy crew of investors who had convinced themselves, and myself included, that hey, this, the direction the future is going to move is towards more efficient use of natural resources. And that, frankly, still hasn't changed um, for the most part. You know, now we we do have the emergence of more sort of impact oriented investing in a in a major way. Um, but especially at that time, you know, you had groups like S Power, you had groups like Rockport Capital, all focusing on okay, how do we find good, compelling, just unit economics under the theory that if you just build a better mousetrap, the world will be the path to your door, right? And so we can get into whether that's proven to be true over over the years. But at the same time, that's really what people were looking for were better mousetraps. And what kind of investments? You said it was mostly hardware. Are you talking equipment, solar panels, lighting fixtures? What kind of investments was were coming in the door? Exactly, and and all the components thereof. So, you know, what's a better way to do inspections with solar panels? You know, much less, you know, what's a better way to make a solar panel? You know, you had the emergence of all of these thin film solar technologies and all these um, concentrator solar technologies. I remember, you know, at that point in time, you would talk with uh, people out of the research community, uh, especially at places like the DOE, where they were trying to get a good perspective on what was going on. And there was this vision at the time that the world was going to be taken over eventually by solar, but it wasn't going to be polysilicon you know, it wasn't it wasn't gonna be one consistent, you know, winner take all because every rooftop is different. So Fresno lenses were gonna be, you know, uh, an important technology and all of these other uh, different types of solutions were all gonna have their spot in the universe. So a lot of those technologies and a lot of those investments didn't pan out and uh, a lot of venture capital firms found that the investments were not what they expected. Is that accurate, and 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 how does that couple with the the unit economics that you were seeing at the time? I think that's accurate. I think that some of the folks who were actively investing at time at that time at that early point before it became you know sort of a clean tech wave, those those folks actually were able to generate some nice returns at times. But basically, since then, once the once the upswing started happening, if you look at the available research, like what Cambridge Associates has published on clean tech venture capital returns. Um, it hasn't been a barren wasteland, but at the same time, it just ha- simply hasn't produced the, the kinds of returns, uh, at least as an overall sector, that um, venture capitalists are looking for and that they've promised their limited partner backers. And so, yeah, it, it ended up not being uh, very successful, and there's a whole host of reasons as to why. But first and foremost, you have to understand that everything changed when CalPERS and CalSTRS started their Green Wave program and a lot of generalist VCs started getting into the sector, everything changed at that point. And that was just a couple of years in from when I got started. And what changed? Well, basically, when everybody started jumping in out of the big, mainstream, heavily capitalized venture capital firms, they were looking for something different. You know, what I was describing before, uh, you know, with the clean tech crew, um, it's not like people had low aspirations for the investments they were doing, but at the same time, there was a sense of, hey, our, our fund is only $125 million, and we're probably going to have to do a lot of the, you know, backing of this company by ourselves. So let's keep it rather lean, right? Let's build a, a good company off of a relatively small amount of venture capital. When suddenly you have, you know, some major LPs like CalPERS and CalSTRS jumping in and saying, we're now going to put, you know, millions upon millions of dollars into this. And that triggers a wave of other limited partners saying, okay, great. You know, other pension plans, other endowments saying, great, we're going to put a lot of money into this as well. 
then all of a sudden it, it became the place for a lot of generalist folks to jump in. One of the things that really marked that period for me was I was you know, only two years into a venture capital career, uh, still very inexperienced, and yet I was getting invited constantly to coffees by people at you know, well-known venture firms yeah. um, who had been suddenly tasked with transitioning from being on the telecom team to being on the clean tech team. Hmm. And hey, let's talk about what you're seeing in the, in the market, and hey, where should we be looking to invest? I literally had a senior partner. There I was, a, a pretty junior investor, and I had a senior partner at one of the best well-known venture firms call me up, and he said, you know, in the course of that conversation, he literally said verbatim, Rob, when you find stuff that is more capital intensive than you guys can do, call us because that's what we're looking for. What people started to think because of just the general zeitgeist of, you know, policy conversations at that time and where the economy seemed to be and where the, you know, breakthroughs were starting to become more visible um, and, and therefore where the, the, you know, the big name VCs started to look at it. People just really felt like we were on the cusp of a real market revolution and that was true, by the way, but they also correspondingly thought, therefore, this is the way we're going to find the next unicorns. We're going to find the solutions that are going to be, you know, the breakthrough cost, you know, cost curve changing innovation in solar panels and fuel cells and you know, batteries and you name it. And this is what's going to be the way that we unlock tremendous venture returns. And by the way, it's not necessarily a bad thing from their perspective that it also is going to soak up a lot of capital along the way because, hey, we've got big funds to put to work. Yeah. Uh, and we'd like to put them to work quickly. And so the whole thing became this, you know, virtuous cycle, as it were, put virtuous in quotation marks, but this virtuous cycle around, hey, here's an area that can soak up a lot of capital, we can put a lot of capital to work, and it will generate, you know, a lot of returns for us. And then that drove the entrepreneurs to seek more capital-intensive, you know, tactics and strategies and models. And that, that sort of thinking really came to dominate the industry by around 2006, 2007. But the, the type of capital that was necessary in the clean energy space wasn't necessarily venture capital, right? Well, that's what we know in retrospect, but at the time, you know, all the VCs, I remember being in a, a room in Boston where I, you know, transitioned to a firm here in, in the Boston area um, by about two and a half years into being a, a VC. And I remember at one point we got basically all of the uh, venture investors in town into one room together to strategize how we were going to go to, as, a, as venture capital. We were going to go to Washington, D.C. and basically, you know, orchestrate a whole big government policy program in support of these kind of technologies. And the whole presupposition there was, hey, okay, we're going to do most of the heavy lift in the early going as V.C. And then there's going to be government dollars or some kind of government, you know, support or corporate dollars or a little, little bit of a, you know, a business plan sort of step one V.C., step two question mark, step three profit. Right, unfortunately, um, because then there was this picture that eventually all we do is we just hand it off to you know mainstream project finance, um, and they're the ones that provide the billions of dollars to to carry it through. And I don't think any of us realized, certainly I didn't realize, just what a wide gulf there was in pragmatic reality between the role of the VC and the role of the project finance, and certainly a lot of the anticipated support uh, at the federal level vaporized, you know, over time. In hindsight, do you think that we had it was necessary nonetheless for that more aggressive venture capital to come in to allow some of these technologies to mature before the handoff of the pro of project finance? Was there 
you know, I guess, was there an alternative in 2007, 2008 to venture capital in the space? There really wasn't. Uh, there were, you know, some of the things that I mentioned, you could use the, you know, at various points, the loan guarantee program to get your manufacturing plant built. You could get a strategic partner who would finance your first, you know, large scale plant. One of the things that really marked that period was a lot of the innovations were very focused on centralized type solutions. Or, or big manufacturing plants or something that involved, you know, a singular piece of large infrastructure either on the manufacturing side or the, or the actual asset side. And, and, you know, that, that would lend itself to, okay, yes, we need to put hundreds of millions of dollars of capital somehow. And I guess VCs are the ones that are going to have to do it, um, in order to get it to the point where project finance can, can take the baton from us at that point. One of the things in retro, you know, there's a lot in retrospect that, at least for me, I can't speak to anybody else smarter than me, but for me, you know, since then I look back and I'm like, wow, okay, a lot of the really compelling innovations, though, were much smaller scale, sort of distributed asset innovations. A lot of the solutions in terms of the capital side that were needed just weren't there yet, but now we're starting to see them. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you go back to that period, it's exactly what you're saying. Uh, At least in my memory, um, there was a lot of, of... you know, unknown, unknown that we eventually had to struggle with. So fast forward to, I don't know, 2010 to 2012, the VC market has pulled back a little bit from the space. How did you adapt as an investor in the space? Well, by then I'd gotten pulled into a really fascinating situation. My now partner, Christian, had been tasked with building out a, a carve out within a single family office. And for anybody who doesn't know, that basically means we're investing on behalf of a wealthy individual. Um, and we had been tasked with, here's a blank sheet of paper, small amount of capital, you know, we pull a small team together and go out there and figure out how to actually make compelling returns off of the clear natural resources megatrend. So we did have that pullback, right? I mean, the 2008, 2009 timeframe was the beginning of what ended up being a very slow but pretty catastrophic train wreck across the industry where, you know, people had built business models for their startups that were predicated on the availability of large amounts of capital. And of course, then a lot of that capital dried up. Capital dried up across all sectors, but it just didn't come back into these sectors. Um, And so, you know, over time, a lot of companies ended up limping uh, either across, you know, finish lines or just going away altogether. But meanwhile, there we were as a team and we, you know, eventually pulled in my now, you know, other partner, Nick Thiel as well who had a background in structured and, and project finance. And, and, you know, what we were able to do with our broad experiences mixed together was start to think create uh, creative. You know, what are new models that we can find? And one of the things that we did is we started networking in with other family offices because we thought, okay, well, we've got, you know, the ability to think creatively. We've got the ability to be flexible with our investment model. We don't have to do, you know, the, the venture capital thing just because that's the way it's been done in the sector today. And when we started connecting in with other family offices, we started hearing a lot of common, you know, laments. Um, a lot of folks saying, yeah, we, we'd like to think creatively, but, you know, it's hard for us because family offices typically aren't comfortable playing a lead role around an investment, especially creating an entirely new investment model. And so therefore, we're mostly seeing stuff that, you know, gets passed to us either because the VC already invested in it and structured it that way, or we're just at the tail end of some investment bankers, you know, call list. And so we started banding together first very informally and, and not publicly with several of those family offices 
with the idea of, hey, let's just compare notes and look to co-invest with each other, look to you know think about how we could share new ideas. That ended up becoming a formalized group, and then that ended up being a group that we talked about publicly with very unfortunate timing because, first of all, since we had never thought about talking about it publicly, we called it something inane like the Clean Tech Syndicate. And, <laughs> and of course, we had the great timing of uh, announcing the Clean Tech Syndicate the very same week that Whitey Bulger got arrested. Um, <laughs> and so there were a lot of jokes, properly so, at our expense that week. But that eventually became, you know, something that we were able to combine with another network of such groups that we've been involved in. And it's now actually a really big, uh, really big deal that, you know, uh, this woman, uh, Regine, who is phenomenal, has been running and, and grown terrifically. It's a group called the Creo Syndicate now because we continue to be very bad at naming things. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's, that's how we kind of went at that problem. It was a, a terrific opportunity for us to take that step back to try in a different, uh, bunch of different roles. We acted as limited partners ourselves, putting money into other venture firms. We did some early stage ventures and growth stage stuff. We looked at a bunch of stuff and centralized infrastructure, although the returns even then were pretty uh, uninspiring. Uh, they're even worse now. We looked at a whole bunch of models that don't even have names, and it was a, it was a tremendous opportunity to try in a bunch of different things. So it was, there was no clear mandate necessarily other than finding attractive risk-adjusted returns where during that that experience where you sort of had the opportunity to, to put money in different spots, where did you find yourself putting the money or being lured into? What was the, the most interesting opportunity in, in that period of time? Yeah, and there's actually totally separate answers to the various parts of that question you just asked. <laughs> because one of the things we found is that the venture capital structure has so dominated uh, the entrepreneurship end of these markets that even when we didn't intend to invest into a venture capital opportunity, it quite often ended up getting tied into a venture capital structure. Yeah. You know, if, if you want to talk about the pros and cons of that, um, but but basically, you know, even though as we tried to shift away from venture capital, we found that a lot of what we did ended up looking like venture capital. And, and then the other thing, though, that we found more positively, you know, it gave us such a tremendous opportunity to hang around with a bunch of really smart, creative people out of the family office community, the, the strategic community, the institutional investor community, all these different groups, and to, to discover that there was another major trend that I've already alluded to that was going on, and that was around smaller-scale distributed solutions. It turns out that over the past 30 or so years, there's been a lot of innovation that oftentimes isn't some kind of really whiz-bang space-age innovation, but around the development of smaller-scale solutions for providing energy or, or energy services or wastewater treatment or even indoor food production and certainly waste to some other form of value kinds of treatment. They're, they're relatively smaller scale. They're more sort of industrial scale as opposed to utility scale. And uh, that's been tremendously enabled now by the fact that thanks to advancements in you know, IT and telecommunications and, and automation, that you don't have to have you know, a four-person crew so that you have 24-7 coverage to be able to turn dials and monitor gauges on site for one of these smaller scale systems. You can basically run it for the most part from a headquarters. And that dramatically changes the economic value proposition of a lot of stuff because you know, the trade-off of centralized hub-and-spoke you know, infrastructure has always been, hey, we get economies of scale at the spoke, at the big you know, utility scale plants of whatever size, whatever type. But then we have to pay a lot for the distribution infrastructure, whether that's you know, in the case of like food or water, actually physically transporting you know, heavy objects. 
or whether that's in the case of electricity, you know, having to manage a bunch of wires to keep them constantly in balance and the like. And, you know, it turns out that you can get a lot of economic trade-off, a lot of economic benefit by locating these kinds of systems, you know, that are smaller scale, closer to where they're actually needed. Um, yeah. If you can take the, the labor efficiency equation, I, I'm getting back into my economics dorkiness here, but, you know, you can see the way that I kind of think about things, is, you know, at, at a macro level, favoring these smaller scale systems. And we, we saw, as we looked across this landscape of all of these really smart investors we knew, that they had collectively uh, invested in and helped bring to market a bunch of these kind of solutions, but that were being held back for the most part, with the exception of solar, where you know a bunch of smarter people than us, and we got to do some of it ourselves, learned how to actually capitalize um, the deployment. And so with that, you know, we sort of said, okay, great, here's a recipe and a mega trend, and what do we do about that? And that's you know that's one of the things that we saw that we did like. And I'm glad you brought up distributed generation. I think it's one of the more interesting uh, opportunities for capital to come in right now in in part because it still is not attracting the same level of capital uh, that larger projects are attracting. And it's one that we view at Clean Capital as one of the challenges to ultimately have it have distributed generation reach its potential. I know you're looking at a lot of this stuff as well. Why is it why is it a space that has struggled historically to attract the pension funds, the insurance companies, folks like that? Yeah, and that's a, and it's a fascinating question. I don't think there's any one answer. I think you're spot on in diagnosing that it is an issue, but I, I still am figuring out, frankly, why it's been held back. But I'll give you a couple of illustrative you know, anecdotes around that. First of all, like a year and a half ago, I you know got invited to sit in a room, invite only with a bunch of pension plans from around the world. Without going into the details of why, I'll just state it was not a clean energy focused conversation. Mm-hmm. It was really a conversation around how they could collaborate with each other, you know, towards finding innovative new investment approaches and really just you know figuring out how to work together as institutions. Uh, and the thing that was really fascinating is one thing kept coming up in that meeting. Again, it was not a clean energy meeting, but one uh, opportunity that they kept saying we have to figure out how to invest into was distributed generation. Hmm. And so it's not for lack of interest. It's not even for lack of, you know, the recognition of the opportunity. These are very smart 30 year investors for the most part at that level. They can see the long term trends as well as anybody. And you don't even need to believe in the need for impact or the need for addressing climate change or anything to just understand that at a basic level, the world's going to need more of everything and more efficient use of everything. And distributed generation is a fast growing portion of the market with a lot of tailwinds, uh, so to speak, behind it. Yeah. And if, so the, if the thesis, there's, there's the interest, if the thesis, right? yeah, if the thesis is that distributed generation is going to be a crucial part of the energy future, then it's inherently necessary for us to figure out ways to get pension capital, insurance exactly. capital into it. Exactly. So what holds it back there for, right? So what seems to be holding it back is that it is simply not traditional project finance. It's simply not traditional infrastructure. And to be able to figure out how to scale the capital appropriately into these smaller scale projects really is a different kind of recipe. It's very related, obviously. And so that's where, you know, you guys and your team and, you know, other folks and, and now us, you know, are, are working on trying to figure out how to bring, you know, more of that mainstream capital in. But the mainstream capital uh, and the recipes they're already used to don't quite fit without, you know, without some help. And part of that has to do with the fact that 
you know, if you're building a large centralized wastewater treatment facility, you know, a, a, a big municipal uh, sewer treatment plant, you pretty much know that that's going to be a one-off thing, and you are hiring the engineer to do the specs for that particular project. You're financing it through that particular project. Um, you know, everything is done on a bespoke basis for that project. And in order to bring it to more of the distributed generation side, you've got to get much more into figuring out how to standardize, how to validate the developer and and the project on a much more you know easily replicable basis. And that's particularly difficult in an inherently messy world that just you know resists such standardization and and the like. Obviously, we've seen that there are ways to do it, and I think what you guys are seeing and, and what others have seen historically is that when you can step in and provide you know the right kind of recipe, you can get some really attractive returns for for playing that role. Yeah. Um, and we've also seen that when you do start to show, hey, this recipe works, then they're very interested, larger, you know, more mainstream, you know, capital providers uh, at the tail end of that who are very excited to jump in and do the 30th of something. But it's that, it's that how do you unlock the, you know, the early stages of, uh, of these uh, distributed asset models that, that it's still like a hard thing to come by. Yeah, and we think that you have to make it as easy as possible for the investors to understand, to navigate, and to invest in, in order for them to actually they have- do it. They have trillions of dollars of, of potential places around the world that yeah. they could be investing. They need to be shown not, okay, here is a place where you could theoretically put money to work. and It can make all the sense in the world, but in, if it's not, hey, here you go. Here's a box we made. It's got a crank on the side. When you turn the crank, it makes money. Yeah. Right? I mean, it, that's, it's got to be made that simple and that easy. And meanwhile, the other thing about distributed generation and all the other distributed stuff that, that we now you know, operated in as well in the water and the food and the waste side of it. You know, you've also got a, a set of developers and project developers who oftentimes don't even think of themselves as project developers who it, it needs to be made easy for them as well. You know, that's a world of, of sort of smaller project development where trying to provide your wastewater treatment system as instead an on-site service where stuff is still being figured out in terms of making that end of it scalable as well. And I know that's one of the things that, that you and your team work on. Awesome. So let's, as we wind down uh, this interview, let's uh, let's look to the future a little bit. And as you reflect on the last 15 years of your career in clean energy, how far have we come? Well, from a market perspective, we've come a long way. I mean, we've got a heck of a longer way to go, obviously. But when you think about it from when I was first starting to be an investor and we thought, hey, maybe someday solar will become cost competitive, to looking at what has happened in terms of the price of, of solar power today, when you look at the fact that, you know, going back to like a, what is it, like a, the, the early days of when people were really excited about this thing called a Tesla Roadster, and, um, <laughs> you know, the, the fact that George Clooney was able to get a hold of one of them, right? You know, like those kind of things uh, we look back upon now and we realize, wow, over the past 10 plus years, the world has dramatically changed in these markets. The thing that's also frustrating, though, is the capital hasn't come back. Yeah. Right. And so you've got this weird cognitive dissonance of the fact that we've got, you know, some of the world's fastest growing markets with a very clear megatrend supporting their continued growth in the future. And yet, you know, existing investment models haven't figured out how to make money off of that yet. And so the great news sort of looking forward and where we are now is that I think we're on the cusp of seeing that, you know, the emergence of a much more robust capital ecosystem. And that's exactly what we need. 
I, I had the opportunity a few months back to sit in the back of a room at a mainstream private equity industry conference, uh, specifically around energy, but not at all around clean energy. They had they had one token panel around clean energy, and so they invited me to speak, and that was my opportunity to sit in the room and listen to the rest of the essentially oil and gas conference. And somebody asked a really smart investor out of one of the big name PE shops, hey, with oil prices at blah, 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 you know, where should we be looking to invest? And I thought his answer was brilliant and really insightful and applicable to our industry. He said, look, I could give you a snapshot answer of, you know, where you should invest at this point in time. But the more important thing is I get the opportunity to invest into all sorts of different models and all sorts of different opportunities. We've got, you know, all the different basins. We've got upstream. We've got midstream. We've got downstream. We've got end users. We've got all sorts of different investment models with risks and, you know, the levels and, and re return levels, um, even within each of those little buckets. So his point was at any given moment, at any given part of the cycle, there's somewhere I'm supposed to be investing. And I was sitting back in the room thinking, man, that's exactly what we haven't had. It goes back to what I was saying earlier. We have had venture capital and then we've had, you know, sort of traditional infrastructure and a huge gulf in between it. And that's one of the reasons and one of the biggest reasons why this industry has um, been riding such a roller coaster as it has over the past decade, because, you know, the, the capital solution set has been too sparse. And at different points in economic and sectoral cycles, you know, the appropriate type of capital hasn't been. The good news is I just see a lot of really smart investors start to come out with interesting models now. It starts to feel like we're now going to start to have a, a, a much more diverse set of capital solutions to support the market. Yeah, I think that there is an eagerness of capital to come into the space and we're just now getting to the the critical mass of business models and, and opportunities and ways to invest in the space so that capital can flow in. And I can tell you the pension plans, like I said, are even more focused on it now. All of the endowments, all of the pension plans, they all have somebody who's being tasked with figuring out when and how they can put capital at work into these markets. Our family office syndicate that I described was uh, always engaged with very, very large institutional investors who would always come trying to figure out how they could learn from the, you know, the types of, you know, financial innovations being done around that syndicate. And there's just a, a sense that what needs to happen is now is to demonstrate some real replicable returns. And then a lot of capital is waiting to come into the market. On that optimistic note, uh, I'd like to thank you, Rob, for joining Experts Only Podcast. Thanks so much for the invitation. Sorry for talking to your ear off. <laughs> no, it was wonderful. Thanks very much. That was a great conversation with Rob Day, who took us through the short history of clean energy investing. I want to thank our producers, Lauren Glickman and Emily Connor. More episodes are available at cleancapital.com. And we invite you to keep tabs on iTunes as we roll out new weekly episodes. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.